This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, it's Luke and Sarge here and welcome to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who do we have on the show today? Sarge, good question, mate. We've got Fee Kerr, who is an osteopath currently working in private practice in Melbourne. Fee studied osteopathy as an undergraduate immediately after finishing high school, which was a lengthy five-year course. Uh, During her undergrad, Fee gained experience in various environments, including as a sports trainer at a local AFL football club uh, and as a receptionist at a private osteopathy clinic. Fee completed her mandatory work placement as a at a physiotherapy clinic during her final two years of study where she first observed as an osteopath or observed an osteopath rather working at the clinic, then worked on patients herself once a week. Eventually, Fee was able to turn her part-time receptionist role into an osteopath position, which she has been working at that same clinic uh, ever since once completing her degree. Fee, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. How are you? Yeah, well, um, well, thanks for coming on. Appreciate your time. Um, so I think a good place to start for uh, the people listening and certainly for, for Sarge and myself, we kind of get a bit confused as to what an osteopath is and, and what a physio <laughs> and everything is. So why don't you run us through what you do day to day as an osteopath and maybe uh, a few of the differences between between the different dif- disciplines? Mm-hmm. Probably like the most common question that we get is what is an osteopath or what is the difference between an osteopath and a physio? Um, So I guess an osteopath first and foremost, so hands-on manual therapists, um, we have people of all ages from all walks of life coming to us with different musculoskeletal pains and issues, injuries, all of that kind of stuff. Um, My day-to-day, as you said, I work in private practice, so I'm just in an osteo clinic, um, just having clients coming in um, five, six days a week different presentations, literally anything from a school kid that's hurt themselves at gym to a seven-year-old that has had a fall. So absolutely anything can walk through the door. Um, I also am a Pilates teacher, so do that a couple of times a week um, as well just to kind of break up the week. I think in terms of kind of the difference between an osteopath and the rest of them, it's really a difference in philosophy of treatment. So the main thing that sets an osteopath apart is that we have a what we call a holistic approach to treatment. So our aim is to look at the body as a whole. So someone coming in with an ankle sprain, you know, you're looking up through their hips, their knees, their low back to kind of figure out how that ankle sprain is affecting the rest of their body, why they may have had that ankle sprain in the start and just kind of chasing, you know, looking for the actual cause rather than chasing the symptoms. Um, a physio on the other hand, typically is a lot more rehab based. So I guess that would be the main difference in that it's really tricky because, you know, every single osteopath you see treats differently and every single physio you see treats differently. So the main thing that I would say, people always say, who should I see? And I just say, whoever helps you, honestly, whatever you find is helpful for you, follow that because everyone's different. And I've probably changed a lot in the last five years, so I can't even tell you. And did you appreciate that difference 
um, coming out of school and before you actually chose to study osteopathy? Not at all. So I actually only found out what an osteopath was about halfway through year 12. Um, I knew I wanted to be in the healthcare industry and wasn't sure I wanted to be a physio, didn't want to be a GP and I just had no idea where to go. And I stumbled across osteopathy, went to one open day at a uni and just applied. So starting osteopathy, I kind of had an idea about what it was, but I had really no idea, you know, the actual ins and outs and how it differed. So and I think it's- And why the interest in the healthcare space? I couldn't even tell you. It's just always something that I've wanted to do. Ever since I was a kid, I wanted to be in the healthcare industry. Um, initially, I wanted to be more like your doctor or your, you know, obstetrician, that kind of stuff. But I then kind of transitioned more into the sports side of things and then started thinking about physio and sports doctor and then, you yeah, just kind of landed on osteopath. When you, uh, we'll get into the kind of journey that you've, you've come from um, school and through uni in a sec, but um, for people that are thinking about getting into any of those kind of related disciplines, be that osteopathy or physio or, or whatnot, um, practicing in private, private practice, um, you spoke about the people that come in and the kind of things that you do day to day, but what does your work week look like? Like you mentioned that it might be six days a week. Um, what are the hours like? How's the workload? Is, is there a good work-life balance? That, that kind of thing. Can you speak to, to those areas of it? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, typically five to six days a week. I think a lot of osteopaths, um, probably a majority would work at two different clinics. I think it's a lot easier to kind of split your patient base between two different clinics, just kind of breaks up the week a little bit. Um, so a lot of my days are half days. Um, when you work in an industry that kind of people have to fit around their work hours, your mm. work hours aren't really conventional work hours. Um, like early mornings, late evenings. Yeah. So, you know, on a Pilates class, I'll start, you know, at 6.30, 7 in the morning. Um, and then some nights you'll work until 7, 7.30. I even used to work until 8 o'clock. Um, and then I think the most common thing is working the Saturdays. So, you know, a lot of people don't want to have to fit, you know, fit their osteo treatment in around their work day. So Saturdays and weekend work is a really big part of the, um, of the industry for sure. And Faye, I think you're no stranger to working Saturdays because uh, during your university uh, studies, you were working at a local football club. I and was. helping out down there. How did you um, secure that position and how did that help you uh, transition into the workforce? So I got that position, me and another friend at uni um, just stumbled into it. I think they were advertising on some university board or something like that. Um, and it was just really local to where we both live. So we went down and, um, had a chat. Um, I can't even, yeah, I think I worked there for about three years. It was really great. I think I started there in my second year of uni. So in the second year of uni, you haven't had really any hands-on experience with any patients. You're just kind of learning the theory. So to be able to start that from my second year and really get that hands-on, start practicing my skills and, um, just have that extra practice every week was yeah really helpful. And did you find that that um, helped you with your like studies at university? Like you, you found that you were able to um, like improve your grades and like it really contextualized your learning? Yeah, definitely. I think it, you know, you learn something at uni 
um, like a new technique or a new diagnosis or a new way of looking at an injury. And then I could go and apply that straight away, um, whether it was at training with people coming in for help or on the actual Saturday game days, people coming off injuries or wanting work, warming up and that kind of stuff. It was a really great way to kind of cement the knowledge um, and get that practical application from the start. I bet the players were very appreciative too. <laughs> very appreciative, yes. And was that a paid position? It was a paid position. I think only about 50% of them are paid positions. I have friends that were footy trainers at other footy clubs that weren't getting paid. Um, so I was just lucky that I was at a club that did. Um, I mean, you're not raking in the big bucks, but it's it's helpful to have something there for standing in the rainy weather on a Saturday in winter. But um yeah, I mean, it wasn't much, but it was paid, yeah. On that phase, Sarge and I both have our own experiences and own opinions on it. Um, but with the paid versus volunteer kind of debate in terms of experience while you're at uni, what, what are your thoughts on on that? Like if there is an opportunity that comes up that um, allows you to, as Sarge said, contextualize your studies and, and practice things in the real world, do you think if an unpaid position like that comes up, people should, should jump on it um, or wait until a paid position comes up and, and just kind of tread water until then? I think it depends on how much um, how much that position is demanding of you. Mm-hmm. Um, my You touched on it at the start, the placement that I did later on in my studies, which was only about four hours a week, um, which wasn't paid. Whereas the footy training, you know, it was two hours every Thursday, sometimes two hours Tuesday. And then, you know, I'd be there from 10 till five on a Saturday. So it was a huge chunk of my week. And Mm. I think for me personally, if that wasn't getting paid, you know, especially when you're a uni student and, you know, you're having to work part-time jobs to kind of get the money coming in. If you're giving up that much of your work week, it is tricky. Um, if you're fortunate enough to be in a position where you can have, you know, as I said, a placement for four hours a week or something that doesn't take as much time, I think that's not, you know, necessarily needs to be a paid position. I think there can be a bit more flexibility there, but I, I, I would say it comes down to how much it's demanding of you, to be honest. I think it's really good advice. And we can talk to more of the, intricacies of, of what your course demanded to say get be, be qualified as an osteopath in, in, a, in a sec but let's kind of bounce back to uh you know you're in year 12 you're figuring out what your um, application is going to be and your preferences and I assume that you put down um, osteopathy as an undergrad can you talk through your your thinking through that and what might have influenced you what might not have influenced you say through high school um and then how that process came about and why you chose the course that you did Yeah. So as I said, I always kind of wanted to be in the medical field. So when I was picking my subjects, I, you know, made sure I had my sciences and my maths and all that kind of stuff. Um, My preferences that I put down were a bit of a mixed bag. I, I had osteopathy first. Um, I think I was talking about this with someone not long ago. I think I had like paramedics on there and midwifery and all this stuff that if I got, I don't know that I would have actually accepted. So I'm happy that I did get osteopathy. Um, I think in terms of what influenced me to put that down, I it was just research. I didn't know. I knew what field I wanted to be in. I didn't know what job I wanted. I did talk to my careers counselor at school. Um, I, you know, I think they give out those books with different 
um, jobs in there under different sections and all the rest of it. Um, yeah, I, I don't even know what influenced me to put it down. I just came across it one day, went to the open day and thought, oh, this kind of sounds like what I want. I'll give it a go and see where I go from there. And what what was the thinking there? And, and I think I mentioned it at the start that it was a five-year undergraduate degree and that's you know similar to other degrees like say medicine is quite long. Um, you know, if you get into anything in, in law or double degrees, they're quite long as well relative to say an arts degree or a, uh, a commerce degree or something that is say three years. It's a mm-hmm. relatively big decision to say I'm going to com- yeah. commit to this. So did that come into the thought process there or was it more just – this sounds good. I'll give it a try. And then if I don't like it, I can, I can do something different. It definitely did, did come into the thought process. Um, the way they advertise it, they, it's a three year bachelor and then it was the two year master's degree. So oh. I remember having the thought that, you know, I could have a break after three years, you know, I had friends that were going on gap years and I, you know, had that worry that I was missing out on doing something like that so I always thought you know after my three years if I'm not loving it I can take a break um when I actually started the degree there you know you could have taken a break at any point but it wasn't really set out that clearly um halfway through my degree they actually changed it from a bachelor to a master's to a double bachelor so we didn't even have that clear break that I could have taken in that. Um, so so what, what did it change to in the double bachelor? What were the two disciplines that you would have been studying? So it changed to a double bachelor of um, applied science and complementary medicine. So they say that it changed, but in the subjects we did, it did not change at all. Um, changed the label. It just literally changed the label. So it didn't change anything that we did at uni other than the fact that we didn't have to do the research project. So um I think in terms of doing a shorter degree, I did have exercise sports science down on my preferences as that I think it's a three year degree and then, you know, you can kind of branch into a lot of other things. But my theory was that if I started doing something like that and then I get three years in and then do something else, you know, you're turning it into an eight year degree. Mm. I just thought, well, let's just give us your puppy a go. I'll get my credits and all the rest of it, same as I would have an exercise sports science degree. But if it happens to be something that I love, then I'm already a year in. Just to, to move, play, move forward a little bit to um, securing your position where you work today, mm-hmm. you uh, previously worked as an administrative um, staff member there and that's how you got your foot in the door. Um, how did you get that role and uh, what types of things did you learn um, doing that? Yeah, so I was actually seeing the osteopath who owns that clinic as a client of hers. Um, and she, Was, was so we, that strategic? <laughs> you know, in hindsight, it probably was at the time. I was just, you know, dealing with injuries, but it turned out to be quite strategic. Um, but, yeah, I was seeing her as, an, um, as a client, and so she knew I was a student and we had developed a bit of a relationship. So... She actually just called me up one day out of the blue and asked me if I was looking for work because our receptionist had just left. So I was very fortunate to fall into that position as well, um, that they just had one open up. I, yeah, I worked there for a couple of years. I think it was just really great to kind of see how the osteopath day to day was kind Mm. of see their hours, see what they had to put into it. Um, see what kind of clients were coming in the door um and chatting to them about it all you know obviously all the girls working there knew that I was an osteo so I'm not an osteo an osteo student so they you know if I had any questions they would help me um sometimes I would 
you know, ask them questions about any assignments or anything I was doing at uni. Um, but yeah, I think the main benefit was just kind of seeing what their week was mm-hmm. um, and just getting an idea about what my life would then be once yeah. graduated. To, to that, as a bit of an extension to that, I, from, from the, what I understand it, a lot of the physios and osteos and, and whatnot end up either starting their own clinic or like you said, you might run between two different clinics and you're effectively your own small business yeah. effectively. Did you observe the mm-hmm. uh, importance of understanding how a business runs and, and thinking about those kinds of things as well, not just the thing that you've been trained for at uni, but if you go into this field, it's like, oh, I need to run my own business. I, I need to be across the billing and, and the marketing and, and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, so that was a massive thing for me. Um, always being kind of more science dominated, I didn't do any business economics any kind of legal or any subject like that at school throughout any of my school or uni. We did one subject at uni called, um, I think it was intro to business and we wrote a business plan, which was just pathetic. So I remember um, I sat down with an accountant a couple of months into working and he started talking at me and I just had to say to him, okay, I'm going to have to stop you there. What's GST? Mm-hmm. And he just looked at me and he said, uh, okay, um, let's just pull it back a few steps then. I had no idea. I, the, I would say the amount I've learned from a business point of, um, business perspective compared to an osteo perspective is probably on par in the last few years. <laughs> it, I just had no idea. So yeah, everything from what GST is to, um, you know, your tax returns, birth statements, all these words that I just, I'd never even mm thought of um so that was a massive learning curve for me most osteopaths in the industry do work as sole traders independent contractors so we are effectively as you said our own business so we have our own abn um everything that you know we have to deal with our own super payments no paid leave no sick leave all that kind of stuff so Mm. that was all something that I was completely unprepared for. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of have that insight and, you know, on top of that, get a really good accountant from the start. Absolutely. And I think to that, I, I want to, I'm interested to, to get your opinion. If you're talking to say a first or second year student who says, yeah, I, I really want to do this for my for my profession, would you recommend maybe getting a, as silly as it sounds like a business 101 um, book and having, having read through that or talking to a small business owner and kind of understanding those um, requirements before you kind of come out of your five-year degree and say, all right, I'm ready to, I'm ready to work, but I don't know any of this side of the, this side of the coin. Yeah, I think that would definitely be helpful. I have a really great accountant um, that has just taught me everything that I needed. So I haven't necessarily needed to go down that path. Um, I have other friends that, you know, took the road of just getting the cheapest accountant that they could possibly get, um, and have had to do a lot more of their own research into, you know, how a small business works. So Mm. I think either way you go down, it would definitely be beneficial to gain, you know, if you're like me and have zero idea, I think it'd be definitely beneficial to gain some understanding, however you feel would benefit you more. 
I think that's good advice. And just and just one one quick thing there for people that are listening, say maybe uh, students at school and, and whatnot. What what fee? Um, what you spoke about just then in terms of you know you don't get any paid leave as a as a sole trader or a contractor that kind of thing. Um, the way that kind of works is if you go into full time work or even part time work, you get certain benefits from your employer, be they leave or, or sick leave and superannuation, all that kind of thing. But when you're a sole trader um, or a contractor, you have to look after all that yourself and and it's the what you talked about in terms of the gst like if you're earning over a certain amount per year then you have to withhold um, gst that you need to provide to the government and and all that kind of stuff so there's certainly some some nuances to think about if if that's going to be the path that you take for sure yes it was definitely a big learning curve that's for sure Mm. before the the show fee we're talking about your views in terms of um going and learning heaps of things and maybe not applying them, but learning them because you think it, or someone thinks it's a good way to signal interest versus doing a few things and, and really making sure you knuckle down and actually get to apply them. Um, how, how do you think that uh, fits into the osteo landscape? Yeah, I think it's a, a kind of a trap that a lot of people fall into. Um, I think there's this idea that you know, you need to learn as much as you can, as quickly as you can to kind of be the best that you can. Um, I would say, you know, when you graduate from uni, as we've touched on, you know, we've had five years of learning, you know, hands-on practice, all kind of different knowledge that we've graduated with. I would say give yourself time to actually use that knowledge and turn it into experience. Um, in your first year of trading, you're going to learn a lot already. Um, and I think there would be a bit of a danger of overloading yourself. In my first year of uni, I did, um, my first year of practice, sorry, I did a dry needling course, um, which I still, you know, I use all the time. Um, and that really worked well for me, but I have friends that did that in their last year of uni as well as doing all other different courses as well. So that when they could graduate, they had it on their resume and they could say to potential employees, oh, you know, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that. Um, and they hadn't even treated one kind of real patient yet. So I think, you know, just use the knowledge that you've been given already. Once you're confident with that and you feel like you kind of now need more and you're comfortable with what you have then kind of look for more um, mm. before, you know, before you actually know what you're dealing with. I think there's a big danger that you can kind of learn too much. I think that's a really good point. We, we, we might've spoken about this previously, just in time learning versus just in case learning. Yeah. And I think that, um, like you said, that just in time learning is better because it, you get to apply it and it gets solidified and you understand it and then you can actually like master that skill. Yeah, I think, I think give your time, give yourself time to, you know, use the skills and be confident in what you have before you go looking for more would be my mm-hmm. advice. And for the listeners, what is dry needling? Um, yes. Yeah, so it it's sounds a, bit scary. Yeah, <laughs> I, yes, we always joke that they need to change the name of it because you ask clients if they're comfortable with it and people hear the word needle and just freak out. Um, it's essentially very similar in its um, application, I guess, to acupuncture. So where acupuncture is its whole, you know, it's a whole treatment in itself, you know, it's a whole uni degree essentially to Chinese medicine. Dry needling is the similar um, needles, but you're just using them into tight points of muscles and trigger point release and that kind of stuff. So it's just something that we use um, 
you know, along with our hands-on therapy. Cool. Interesting. Yeah. I've learned something new today. <laughs> um, Faye, kind of bouncing forward a little bit more, um, when you eventually do become a, a graduate, so you graduate from your, from your double, you know, kind of pseudo double degree, um, and you go come into the workplace to become an osteopath, do you need to be qualified under a, you know, third party banner or, or, or something like that? Or is it just, you've got your degree and then you can go and practice? Yeah. So you need your degree, obviously first and film first and foremost, um, in order to practice as a, um, I think there's a couple of things you need. So you need to be registered with APRA, which is the Australian health practitioners registration association, I think, go with that. um, <laughs> gosh, um, APRA. And, um, within that they run like your police check and, um, I think you're working with children's check or I think that's part of the police check. It sounds like just, just the common stuff that you would need to be able to look after anyone in, in a workplace if they're under your care, right? That, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So once you do graduate, you know, that degree in itself is enough to go work. You don't have to do any further study to be able to just work day-to-day private practice. Yeah. Right. And, and through the back end of your degree, I know that you did your placements in, in your second or third, uh, sorry, second, last or, or final year. Is that to, um, you know, gain a certain amount of hours that you need to graduate? Uh, w- what was that requirement based around? Yeah. So in, um, third year uni, you start observing. So they have a student clinic on campus where people from, you know, outside of the university come and get treatment similar to like hairdressing salons and all that kind of stuff where they have those uni, um, clinics set up. So in your third year, you observe the older students treating, um, and then in your fourth and fifth years, you start treating yourself. So, that's a subject in itself as part of your degree. And in order to graduate, you have to have treated X amount of patients and done X amount of hours at the clinic. Um, the reason that they encourage you to get an outside placement is that it's just a lot easier to get those hours. So mm-hmm. the, when the clinic was set up, there was, you know, maybe 60, 70 people going through it a year. When I left in fifth year, they had over 150 people in first year. So people being patients or students. Um, students, sorry. Students, right. So the the amount of students really increased, but they weren't necessarily getting more clients through the door. So the idea of getting an outside placement is a just to help you get those hours, but B, it also just really widens the experience and the exposure you're going to get. Um, Mm. And also, you know, working underneath another osteopath outside of the clinic is just, you know, more experience and more knowledge that you can have. And I think working with another osteo outside the clinic is also a great way to network too. Absolutely. That's another prospective employer, another person you can learn from. Yeah, definitely. It's just another person to know in the field. I think it, you know, it's all very helpful in the end. What is the field like? Is it relatively small? Like people know each other in say a city, so say Melbourne or, or Sydney or wherever you are, um, or is it or is it quite broad? Um, it's getting broader. It used to be quite small. There's a couple of online forums and discussion discussion pages where um, quite a number of people are quite active. So you do learn a lot of osteopaths names and there's some big people in the industry and that kind of stuff. Um, I remember when I was in fifth year uni, so my final year and we had kind of like an orientation 
um, week before graduating and one of the presenters came um, and was speaking about, you know, leaving uni and job prospects and all the rest of it. And I remember he said to us, there's more osteopaths at uni than there are registered in Australia. So in terms of growing, it's the fastest growing healthcare industry in Australia at the moment. So it's, it's going to get a lot bigger in the next few years and it already has been getting bigger over the last couple of years. It sounds like that sounds like a bit of an oversupply. Where does one end up if they do an osteo degree, but maybe they don't jump straight into osteo? Is, is there any other pathways that one can um, take? Yeah, so I think that same guy that came and spoke to us at uni, kind of the main crux of his presentation was trying to encourage people to move interstate. Um, it's a kind of both ways working in Melbourne. So on one hand, you have that we're probably the most, I guess, health-minded place. So We're the, we're the most livable city. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Um, so maybe, maybe not at the moment, I was going to say. <laughs> not, not right now, but, on, you know, in the big scheme of things. Um, so there's obviously a bigger supply and demand, you know, in Melbourne than there would be, you know, in rural Queensland or something like mm. that. But on the other hand, exactly what you said, there is getting to that point of there being an oversupply issue of osteopaths, um, you know, because even though we are, health-minded and, you know, we want to have these alternative therapies, there's only so many that we can have before. There is just too many. Mm. Um, so I think they were kind of saying it to us, you know, in fifth year, but they were saying that we're really hounding it into the earlier years that coming into a degree like this, and I think it's important in any kind of healthcare at the moment, is to have in your mind whether or not you'd be open to doing any kind of travel, mm. um, even if it's uh, someone that I used to work for, when she graduated, she moved to country Victoria for a year to work to get experience. Um, I know it's quite common in physio degrees to do placements in the country or to move into state and then come back when you're more experienced. So I do think that in the health industry, it's competitive in any kind of job. So I think that if it is an industry that you're wanting to go into, just to have in your mind, you know, if that's something that you'd be open to or something that you've even thought about really. And just on that point, how in, in a competitive environment, how does one differentiate themselves in the osteo space? That's a very good question. Um, I think as you touched on before, having contacts, knowing more people in the field, being known is a big plus. Um, not to kind of contradict what I said before, um, but having you know, that upskilling and those different courses in the right time frame is a really great way to differentiate yourself from other students. I would say the biggest thing that you could do as a new grad looking for a new job um, is just to be really confident in yourself. I think there's going to be so many graduates coming out and if you're confident in your knowledge, you know what you're talking about, you're confident in yourself and not isn't you're confident in yourself as an osteopath, I think that would be a really big point of difference. Let's put that into context of say, uh, you know, we're talking to a second or third year um, student that is 
keen to get some experience and they're super confident and really confident in themselves and would mm-hmm. normally walk into a clinic and say, hey, can I please have uh, a couple of hours a week or, or whatever? Um, but now they find themselves in lockdown um, yes. and maybe moving towards a work environment where it might be, you know, half online or, or something like that. We mm-hmm. don't know what it's really going to look like. What advice, if it differs at all, um, would you give those people now looking for positions where they're a little bit constrained as compared to say last year? Yeah. I mean, I think it's really tricky at the moment because obviously having another person in the room isn't ideal in a COVID environment. So observations like I did would definitely be hard. Mm. Um, it's actually something that was posted on one of those those discussion forums that I mentioned earlier. Um, an osteopath was posting, asking, what clinics were doing with students that were asking about observations. And it was kind of 50, 50. Some people were like, well, you know, they need it. So we have to supply it and other people were like, it's not the right time, you know, obviously. So I think there's definitely still clinics that I know that are still taking students. Um, I mean, all you can do is ask, I would say definitely still contact them, reach out, ask if there's anything they can do. Um, see if there's any, webinars going on for students, um, any observations, that kind of stuff. But I think just any experience you can get in the field, even if it's just, um, you know, going in for two hours a week or anything like that would be helpful. Well, I think clinics would still need administrative staff. So there's still an opportunity there. It might just look a little bit different to what it has previously. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the clinics are still running. The healthcare industry is still working so jobs are still available it's Mm. just reaching out and i suppose i'm not an expert in the health industry by any means but um you know some experience in trying to get internship positions and and things like that in my own kind of history is that if you can think a bit differently and be a little bit innovative um with coming to people with proposals on how you can help them even though you're not completely you know 100 skilled or whatever um is there scope to do that? So say maybe maybe breaking that problem down a little bit further, if you're not allowed, say, another person in the room, could it be approaching someone at a clinic and saying, hey, can I still observe but via, say, Zoom, like get me up on the Zoom screen and I can see what you're doing in the room from home or, or providing a solution to a problem rather than just saying I can't come in the room so, so that option is gone? Yeah, I think that's a really great idea. Um, I also know moving forward from that, that a lot of clinics are offering telehealth consultations. So, um, you know, essentially Zoom consultations. And that's definitely something that you could talk about with a clinic about whether you could kind of be included on that consult. Um, Because, yeah, as you said, at the moment, there's, you know, not really much else that we can do. So Mm -hmm. to kind of be innovative and think about, ways that you can include yourself in the new ways that we're treating clients would be a really great way to go. Just oh, don't sell, sell that to the, sell to the clinic, right? Like, you know, you can, you can drive innovation and you can be yeah. the one that's providing the, <laughs> providing exactly. the experience to students for no cost Just join the zoom call. Exactly. Mm-hmm. On the telehealth point, um, have you like, have you done any consults via video and how do you see that, um, playing out moving forward? I have done a couple myself. Um, it's mostly just advice, stretching. There's not really a huge amount you, that we can do being such, you know, the way that I treat is really hands-on focus. So taking that away does take away a lot of what I would do in a consultation. Um, 
as I touched on before, I do also do Pilates, so like a lot of clinical exercise, um, which I use as a form of treatment as well, you know, rehab and mobility. So I do a few sessions a week with clients over Zoom um, doing at-home clinical exercise and Pilates sessions. So there's definitely stuff that we can do, um, but I think moving forward, we're you know definitely more suited to non telehealth consults, but definitely. you know we're doing what we can. It's hard to be a um, how do you describe it? A hands using your hands, a hand manual therapist, manual therapist. <laughs> it's hard can, to be a manual a hand practitioner. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to be a manual therapist when um, you can't actually see anyone. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a big part of the job, isn't it? With that fee, like if if it's going to be a, a a future of doing maybe half telehealth or or whatnot, it, it would seem that you need to have quite a high level of EQ to deal with different people and trying to educate some of the time. I'd imagine um, people of different backgrounds and different knowledge bases. Um, a bit of context, like we used to work together at, at, a, at swim school <laughs> when we were at high school, and that you know is educating a class of people who yeah. are, are completely different. Um, are there any stories from say that particular part-time job as a swim teacher or any other part-time positions that were a good training ground for soft skills that you're using now? And, and I guess, a, a, a um, further question to that is what are some soft, soft skills rather that, uh, students can be working to get better at if they're looking to get into the field? Um, I do think it sounds ridiculous, but I do think that swimming teaching did help mm. a lot of, I think the main thing that I struggled with when I first started working was being confident as the authority figure in the room. Um, When you grad, you know, I think I was 23 when I graduated and I really struggled with, you know, a 55-year-old coming in um, with an issue and I have to be the one to tell him what to do or her what to do. And I really struggled with that in myself um, to kind of, be no, no, you're the health professional. You're the one that's done five years of uni. They're coming to you for help. Um, and I think going back to swimming teaching days, yes, it's children and they're not going to, you know, really talk down, talk down or talk back at you. Um, oh, they, they, they did. They did. <laughs> that, that's very true. Dealing with parents was a whole different side of it. But that's exactly right. I think just knowing that you're the professional and not being swayed by kind of their, I guess, opinions or their thoughts on the issue and just saying, no, you've come to me for help. I'm the professional, you know, you've come to me to learn how to, you know, how to swim. I'm teaching a child how to swim. I don't know what else you really want me to say. (laughs) Um, So I think that definitely did help. In terms of soft skills, patient communication is massive. Um, I've done, you know, webinars on it the Pilates course we did has a massive focus on it because you have to be able to tailor the way that you deliver um, advice to different patients and different clients. So you have to kind of have a few different ways you go around things, you know, the tough approach, you know, you have patients who say, if you're not going to do this, don't bother coming back essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, and then you also have to have the people that you have to really work through with and be patient with and then people that you're going to have to explain the same thing 20,000 times to before they get it. Um, so I think just having the ability to communicate and change the way that you communicate 
depending on who you're communicating with is really important. I think that's really good advice. And I think that goes to any profession. You need to be able to empathize and absolutely um, put, put yourself in the other person's shoes and really speak their language so you yeah. can get that message across. And I think on top of that as well, don't underestimate the value of listening. When people are coming to you in pain, half of the way that you can help them is just by being someone that's going to listen to them. So listening and then communicating, you know, something because of what you've listened to and not just spitting something out at them makes a big difference too. Listen, listen to what they're saying rather than you uh, regurgitating any textbook that you might've read. Exactly. And on that one, um, what advice would you have for a year 12 student who's thinking about studying osteo? Put it this way. Is there an example that comes to mind of say a time where you were disappointed in an outcome and you know, some people might think it's a failure um, and it might've been pretty crap at the time, but you've really learned from that and you've grown, grown from it. Is there anything that comes to mind um, from, from that thought process? I think in terms of failure, um, my favorite failure, which sounds ridiculous, but my favorite failure would have to be, just absolutely burning myself out. Um, I, you know, when you're a new student, a new grad, um, and you go for new jobs and you're kind of starting at the bottom of the pecking order, there's that, I think that expectation that you'll kind of do the crappy jobs and you'll pick up the slack because you're kind of at the bottom rung. Um, My advice would be, to kind of put yourself first from the start. When you're working with people, especially there's that tendency to think that you kind of have to, you know, keep giving more of yourself to help these people to a point where you just burn yourself out. Um, I touched on at the start about the working hours um, and then working at two different clinics. So a couple of years ago when I was working at two different clinics, Um, both clinics wanted, you know, afternoon work. They both wanted Saturday work. They wanted late hours. Um, and I was working till seven or eight o'clock every weeknight and working from 8am every Saturday morning. Um, I did that for 12 months and was just absolutely so burnt out at the end that I had to take two months off from work. Um, It's not what you'd expect to hear from a 25 or 26-year-old. No, exactly. Exactly. So I think I just, you know, and you, there's also a really big mental load to working with people and that's not specific to, you know, being an osteopath at all. I think that's any career that works with people or when you're in an industry where people come to you with problems. One thing that I had to learn was to not, kind of take on their problems um, and to kind of leave work at work and then come home and not be thinking about that person, you know, that came into you and started crying to you because all this stuff's happened to them. Um, I think I, yeah, I got to a point where I wasn't enjoying work and I hated that because I really love my job. Um, But it's my favourite failure in the sense that it forced me to create a better work-life balance and, yeah, I'm very grateful for that. But I... No, it's really kind of jammed down students' throats to not burn out, but you don't really know what that means when mm-hmm. someone says you don't burn out. Um, 
because you don't it is, it is a real thing it can yeah, happen <laughs> yeah. because you don't kind of see it happening you don't see or oh, taking that one extra shift or you know taking an extra client that's called up in pain and then being there until 8 30 at night when it's happening you don't see it happening um and you just think oh i'm just started out you know this is what i have to do to get better in the industry i have to work the long hours i have to see the extra clients but you don't have to <laughs> i think that's really good advice. that's really good advice because i think a lot of people talk about um the you you know you always need to say yes and if an opportunity yeah. pops up say yes but i think a lot of the time um, it's just important or more important to actually have the courage to say no. Completely. And I think that's something that is really hard to learn if you don't, if you don't have that naturally. I mean, some people do, if you don't have that naturally and you're a people pleaser and you want to be, you want to portray yourself as a person that will take any opportunity and, you know, be really go get it. Um, it's really hard to find that balance. And unfortunately I found it by going too far, <laughs> but you know, I think it's really easy to say, oh, don't burn out, don't burn out. But unless you actually kind of know what burning out is, it kind of doesn't really mean anything. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with you, Fee. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're very welcome. I think there's definitely some good um, little nuggets in there for people that are, uh, you know, looking to get into osteo or anywhere in the health industry or, or any career Um for that matter, I think, and particularly the last part about, you know, learn to learn that it's okay to say no to some things and, and yes. to take your time and you've got a whole career ahead of you. Um, exactly. Instead of kind of <laughs> jumping in and, and thinking that it's going to be, it's going to be at the end uh, in the next couple of years. So um, yes. yeah, plenty to take away there. And, and thanks for coming on, Faye. You're very welcome. Thanks guys. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.